and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. The Queen has gone. This is the end of an era. But how much did she shape that era? And what kind of a king will Charles III be? Joining me is Stephen Bates, who was royal correspondent for The Guardian and is the author of Royalty, Inc. Stephen, hello. Hello. Hi, Ros. How are you? I'm well, thank you. When you took over as royal correspondent in 2000, what most surprised you about the Queen, the way the court works? I think the first thing that strikes you is how small she was. She was really very petite. And that's not something that necessarily gets shown, particularly in the photographs of her on tour. The second was her, I suppose you could say, almost placidity. She was very serene and self-possessed. She didn't show emotion, but she was increasingly, as it happens, smiley and increasingly looked as if she was happy to be where she was, which I think was not always the case, certainly not in earlier years. So there was this small, smiley, elderly woman who was the focus of all attention, um, not only in Britain, but across the world. And funnily enough, especially in countries like the US, which got rid of their monarchies a long time ago. But the fascination remained. And American friends have always been asking me, uh, what's the Queen like? What's she doing? What's the latest gossip? As if... um, they're slightly reluctant or slightly sad that they haven't got a monarch themselves. Take us back to 1952 when she became queen. I almost perceived this era through my mother's scrapbooks. There were pictures of the princesses, Margaret and Elizabeth, carefully cut out, pasted onto cheap austerity era paper. She was obsessed with the royals. And the queen was young and beautiful. She seemed to answer a need for glamour and pageantry. How was the monarchy viewed in that era? Can you give us a sense of the difference in the way they were venerated? Yes, um, your picture of your mother and her scrapbook is very evocative, and I'm sure uh, many uh, families and people can uh, relate to that. It was a new change. All change is new, but it it was particularly so. Uh, Instead of a succession of elderly, rather staid men and very elderly men at Buckingham Palace uh, among the officialdom and elderly men in politics too. Um, Winston Churchill, her first prime minister, was nearly 80 when she uh, came to the throne. So she was very young and very beautiful and it was like turning a new page after the austerity of the war and the post-war rationing period. Uh, rationing wasn't completely abolished uh, in 1952, but it was on the way out. And within a couple of years, rationing was no more. So there was an enthusiasm and an optimism that uh, surrounded the young queen. And people had a different attitude, I think, a more reverent attitude to the monarchy, certainly less intrusive in uh, wanting to know about the queen and the rest of the royal family. People um, actually did uh, revere the Queen. When uh, the news of her father's sudden death, it wasn't actually sudden, he'd had lung cancer and had been very seriously ill for quite a while. But the public didn't know about that, back to intrusiveness again. And when he died very suddenly and the BBC announced it on the radio, on the wireless in those days, of course, first thing in the morning, men driving to work in their cars stopped the cars got out and took off their hats 
standing in the road reverentially to pay tribute to the uh, dead king. Now, there's many more cars on the road these days, but I don't think anyone has actually done that this time round. And polls at the time showed that a, a large proportion of the public, I think maybe a third of the public, actually thought that the Queen had been chosen to rule over them by God. Now, that was admittedly a large minority opinion then, but now it's almost inconceivable that anyone should think that. The hereditary principle is very well known. And over the years, some of the light was let in on the way the monarchy worked, partly through television, which was, in retrospect, an obvious way to do it, but didn't seem that way when she first became queen. Did the queen want to let that light in, or was she usually compelled to do so? Certainly in the early years, she she wasn't compelled to do so, but she was very nervous and cautious about... uh, letting um, daylight in on the magic, as uh, Walter Badgett uh, wrote in the 19th century. She had to be persuaded to do things, and then she went along with them. I don't think she was really in favour of the televising of the coronation in 1953, and Churchill, her prime minister, certainly wasn't. They thought that would be terribly intrusive. And of course, when the coronation was broadcast live, It was a tremendous success, not only here, but um, across the world. They flew tapes of the video film of the the coronation across the Atlantic so that it could be shown um, in the United States in front of a big audience um, within hours of the actual event taking place. So it was not something she particularly pressed for or indeed even wanted. But she went along with it, and it proved to be the right decision. She could have taken the monarchy down a different route, because although we are a constitutional monarchy and she has a lot of roles in that it would have been possible to adopt a more slimmed-down monarchy, wouldn't it, in a way that we see Charles, I think, moving towards. Why didn't she do that? Well, for a long time, there wasn't any pressure on her, any public pressure on her to do that. The annual uh, settlement that uh, was reached with the government was really quite uh, generous. She didn't pay tax, for example. And so the uh, court just uh, rolled on. There were lots of hangers-on, lots of old retainers, many of them living in grace and favour apartments. And the tendency was to employ retired military chaps or old Etonians and grandees, not necessarily the most acute or smartest of people, and certainly a conservative bunch, as courtiers and advisers. And she didn't really challenge them very much. Uh, She was young and they were old, so she assumed that they knew best. Uh, which resulted, for instance, in the fabulous case of Commander Colville, who was the press secretary to the palace for 18 years, but didn't believe in speaking to the press and certainly didn't believe in giving out any information. I'm not what you North Americans call a public relations man, he said to a Canadian journalist 
it had the temerity to ask him a question. And uh, Commander Colville, more or less working on his own, used to knock off at three o'clock in the afternoon and retire to his home, which didn't have a telephone. So you can see attitudes to media coverage and publicity were entirely different then. And it was after he retired in 1968 that Prince Philip, who was an innovator and uh, deeply frustrated with some of the uh, old-fashioned practices of the monarchy and the court, persuaded the Queen that a documentary, a naturalistic documentary, should be uh, developed and, and shown. And that too was a tremendous success, even though to modernise it's a very stilted and artificial sort of documentary, fly-on-the-wall documentary. But that started an opening up process and uh, the long search for a wife for Charles accelerated the intrusiveness that was already developing as newspapers got much more competitive and at war with each other in circulation terms. And as you say, they didn't pay, the Queen didn't pay tax until the 90s and then only under pressure. And the royal family's many dysfunctions, let's be clear about that, have sometimes had money at the root of them, haven't they? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, the one thing that the monarchy is very careful about is um, its uh, its own resources. The Queen Mother allegedly once told her daughter that the one thing she must defend with her life was the ability not to pay tax. And it's true that courtiers were beginning to realise that this was a potential time bomb as an anomaly by the early 90s. But it was the events of the 1990s, the Annus Horribilis, the uh, royal divorces, and especially the Windsor Castle fire, which meant that the government, which had assumed that the taxpayer would pay for the renovations to Windsor Castle, suddenly realised there was quite a strong backlash from the public, saying, why should we pay for something that's not our fault and we have no access to? So that produced a change of a change of attitude and accelerated uh, any consideration of paying taxes. And of course, she does now pay tax, though not as much tax as uh, she might do given her wealth, because she's exempt from certain taxes like corporation tax. Let's talk about King Charles III. It still sounds strange to say that. Yeah, I was just going to say someone on the Twitter this morning said, it's very hard to think of King Charles without adding Spaniel afterwards. (laughs) What kind of king does Charles want to be? Well, we shall see. I I think he wants to continue the line as heretofore. All um, royals want to preserve the succession and hand the realm on intact. I'm sure he wants to do that. I think he'll be a rather staid and small c conservative king. He's well aware that he's got a a baggage of well-known and controversial opinions, not politically partisan opinions, but opinions which could stir criticism and debate, things like his views on architecture, his views on um, herbal medicine, and so on and so forth. And of course, he now has to forswear all that as if he'd never held those views at all, but everyone knows that he does. So I think that's going to be quite difficult. I don't think he's going to be a huge innovator. The monarchy is actually partly uh, through positive culling, partly through happenstance, already growing smaller. Prince Harry has flounced out with Meghan Markle. Prince Andrew has effectively disabled himself. 
And there comes a point at which the royals need some backup troops if they are to continue doing the endless round of public visits, which uh, they need to do. So I'm sure he will slim down the monarchy a little bit, but uh, I suspect the brunt of that will be borne by palace servants rather than um, the royal family themselves. How much say does William have now in how the royal family develops? Is there a possibility that Charles might abdicate and make way for him? No, I don't think there is. While Charles is fit and well and capable, the royal family really don't like the A word. They tried it once with Edward VIII and didn't like it. And they do almost anything to avoid abdicating at at this point. And they see it as a part of their sacred duty to reign to the end. And, uh, of course, the Queen only gave up her royal duties on Wednesday, the day before she died. She was working at the age of 96 on red boxes, meeting a new prime minister, all the rest of it. And, you know, that's uh, a jolly praiseworthy thing for for someone who said that her duty would be preserved all through her life. So I don't think Charles will resign, but I do think, unlike some previous monarchs, he will consult William. William seems to be a very level-headed and serious, not so young man anymore. And I am sure he will be better prepared to succeed his father than some of his predecessors as Prince of Wales have been. It's a sobering thought that if Prince Charles lives as long as his mother, he might yet live to celebrate a silver jubilee. I doubt that that's going to happen, but uh, you can never be too sure. The uh, Windsor uh, genes are pretty strong, as we've seen. There may be a yearning for a matriarchal figure in British public life. And the obvious candidate for that, although she is still relatively young, is Kate Middleton, as was the Duchess of Cambridge, as I think her title is changing now. Do you think she can step into that role? Does she have some of the qualities that made the Queen so loved and successful? Well, to all appearances, I think, yes, she does. And I think the royals are very impressed with her. Of course, she had some advantages which uh, poor Diana did not have when she married Charles back in 1981, in that Kate had a university education. That's where she met Prince William, of course. She shared a house with Prince William. They'd known each other for quite a while when they got married. And so she was pretty thoroughly prepared and it wasn't going to be a terrible shock like it was to Diana 20 odd years earlier. And royal protocols had eased then as well in that um, she would never have been considered as a possible bride for a prince of the blood royal, even 20 years earlier, I suspect, because she was a commoner from a very middle-class Berkshire family. It was regarded, believe it or not, in the early 80s, when I was starting my journalistic career, that Princess Diana was a bit of an innovation for the royals in that she was not herself royal. She was just aristocratic from a very old family, but that was regarded as tremendously innovative at the time. And that's probably one reason why Charles wasn't able to save himself a lot of trouble by marrying Camilla Parker Bowles. Many of the symbolic things are going to change. Things like stamps and coins and notes and post boxes and the national anthem. But these are all things that are passing out of our lives already as technology changes them. Is there still a role for the royal family? Can it imprint itself on our lives in the way that it has until now? 
Oh, I think so. I mean, people will still use notes and they will still use stamps uh, and coins, despite everything else. And of course, uh, the the royal seal is on an awful lot of things in this country. Justice in the law courts and the magistrates court is uh, administered under the royal coat of arms. And there are many other institutions where the royal arms is very evident. Justice is done in the king's name, or will be if the barristers ever cease their strike. So yes, you can't escape the um, royal insignia in this country. It, It pops up in all sorts of expected and unexpected places. So I think even if some coins become collector's items, I'm sure that Charles's uh, visage will still be imprinted on public documents and public coinage. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Roz. That's very kind of you for inviting me onto the show. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. And don't forget, you can back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Roz Taylor. Until next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production and music by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>